Welcome to the Fertility Podcast, where we aim to educate and empower you on your fertility journey, whatever stage you're at. I'm Natalie Silverman, a broadcaster and fertility coach, and I had my son after successful fertility treatment. And I'm Kate Davis, an independent fertility nurse consultant. We'll be your trusted guides, chatting each week with experts and people just like you to let you know you're not alone. Let's dive in. So welcome to the last in this current series of the Fertility Podcast. We've been talking about fertility matters at work and we're sharing this last episode in the week of Christmas. What a year. I mean, before we talk about the podcast series, what a year and who knows what is going to happen. All I can say is just, I hope you're well. I hope you get to see the people you want to see and I hope if you can get your booster, you've got your booster. Yeah, absolutely. Have you had a letter? Have you had a letter about going back to vaccinate? I was wondering about you. I keep getting emails, yeah, and I'm desperate to go back. It's just I haven't got the time at the moment because of work and my yoga training. It's taken up all my extra time. So, but yes, I keep getting lots of emails. So I will be going back because I really miss it. Well done. It's amazing Mm -hmm. what you've done. I mean, in terms of a year for the podcast, let's have a little Mm. moment of reflection Mm. because it's been quite a year if you've recently found us around this fertility matters at work series what we did this year for the fertility podcast is we relaunched so in february we totally started again at the start of your fertility journey kate and i are recording this final episode of the podcast whilst i have uh, phoenix my son in the house um, we've decided to keep him out of school for the last bit because we're hoping to see family maybe you've made decisions similar but um Certainly proving a little bit of a challenge. <laughs> Challenging, yeah. I was thinking about you because I don't know if I would have been able to do, have done it with small children around. Luckily mine are older, but I do have a teenager above me who thumps down the stairs. So <laughs> you'll, you'll, you'll hear that in a minute. As we were kind of just recapping, this year for the Fertility Podcast has been pretty significant because if you've only found us this year, we've been publishing for over seven years. We've got over 300 episodes and we wanted to really organise that content. So this year we relaunched starting at the start of what we decided was your fertility journey. Aptly, that's the name of Kate's private practice. There's there's said teenager. Yeah, sorry about that. There we go, right on cue. And... um, (laughs) Kate and I sat down and we planned what we thought your your experience of, of trying to conceive might look like. That's understanding your cycle, thinking about what you're eating, having tests if it's taking longer than you thought. And then we talked all about issues that might be happening like PCOS, endometriosis, adenomyosis. And then we also talked about what, if you do have to go for fertility treatment, what that looks like. Every step of the way from the initial tests, from what happens in a cycle, I mean, everybody has a different cycle. No two people's experiences are the same, but what we tried to do was give you an idea of what you needed to think about, what to expect around egg collection, around embryo transfer and the two-week wait, and then what it felt like if you had a positive or a negative, if you needed to have further treatment. And we also talked about if you had to make that decision to not continue treatment. Um, What do you mean it didn't work? I mean, I tried without the headphones and the sperry and I had to this didn't well you've turned the volume down right before no, you go phoenix the top. okay well this doesn't work before you go mm-hmm. i would like you to just say come here you can come and say hello to kate come and see so you can see her and i would like you to do some of your best christmas singing for kate and for the podcast to say hello hi phoenix hi so i want you to say because kate's got somebody hang coming on, in as well hang on. come in arch <laughs> let's have our boys say yeah, happy christmas come here perfect timing come here oh, my funny. 
You've got to say happy Christmas to the podcast. Come here. Look, there's Kate. Look, Phoenix, look at my big boy. He's bigger this than is you. Archie. Oh. Hi, Archie. <laughs> you, Phoenix, come to say happy Christmas. You've got to say happy Christmas. Okay, as well, happy no, Christmas. After no, three, no, 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 no. After three. To everybody on the fertility podcast, yeah. <laughs> we wish you a happy Christmas. <laughs> but go again. <laughs> I say yeah, go on. Archie, you do it at the same time as Phoenix. One, two, three. To everyone listening to the Fertility, fertility podcast, podcast, we wish you a, wish you a Merry happy Christmas. Christmas. Well done, guys. Well, well done. <laughs> Very good. There you go. Oh, my goodness. This is the most chaotic episode in the world. Um, <laughs> Prepare for us both. That is so funny. We were just trying to recap through the year for you to really give you, I suppose, if your treatment was running in that order... A place to go to so if you've just found the fertility podcast do go back and have a listen what we're going to be doing in january is relaunching all that archive that we've taken off the fertility podcast feed because it is available at the fertilitypodcast.com but we're going to make it easier for you and put it out again as podcast so watch the space we'll let you know because that's a bit of a logistical nightmare but it's going to happen and there's going to be like new podcast feed so there's going to be one about male fertility there's going to be one about pregnancy loss there's going to be one about alternative routes to parenthood from the fertility podcast so you'll be able to share them with other people as well and it'll just be really easy for you to find so that's next year's plan but then what we've Mm -hmm. been doing for this series is talking about fertility in the workplace and I think it's been a really really interesting of course series and I've loved just talking more about this with you as well because you you're a year ahead of me with this conversation and you've been doing amazing work and one of the like brilliant examples of that if you've not listened to it was talking about Kate's work with the Bank of England which was I think our like third or fourth episode to definitely go back and listen have there been any kind of surprises for you from the conversations we've had? We've talked with Channel 4, we've talked about teaching issues, talked about the NHS. There hasn't been any surprises. It's kind of what I knew, I guess, what I've seen in the last 18 months, two years within employment and organisations. I have to admit, I've absolutely loved this series. I think it, it has to be one of my favourites. And the reason of that is that you guys have all been commenting and really sharing the love on this and telling us what you think and what you feel. And it's just been, I don't know about you, Natalie, but I just feel that we've had so much more interaction on this series because it, and and purely because everybody who's, or majority of people who are trying to conceive are also working. They're in the workplace. So it's so topical to all of you. Yeah, we're tapping into it every day. And that is what we're hoping to continue to do. And with our focus on series next year, because we are going to be continuing this kind of pattern of releasing our content in series, because with Mm. both of mine and Kate's work, it just works so much kind of better for us. But there's some other bits and bobs coming with the Fertility Podcast. We're not disappearing in between series, so there'll be more news of that in the new year. I just mentioned one thing with our archive being shared. There's another plan coming too. So just whatever happens, make sure you've subscribed to the podcast. So yeah, we've had a busy year. It's been great. Um, I think that we've got still lots lots to do, lots we can talk about. And of course, if there's things that you feel that there's gaping holes in what we've shared and you've looked around the website and you've looked around the podcast series that we've just said that we relaunched this year and the stuff that we haven't talked about, you know, by all means, let us know. You can um, just email info at thefertilitypodcast.com. So before we share what we've got in this last episode for you, 
what we're kind of doing here is we're kind of wrapping it up and we've talked about the issue we've talked about uh, kind of examples of best practice we've talked about fertility matters at work obviously which i'm part of with becky and claire and kate is our medical advisor we're all kind of working in this space um collaboratively to do what we feel is missing because we want to educate organizations and we want to educate them not just with how to have these important conversations um so that so that if you're a manager for example you're prepared for somebody coming to you we're also trying to help you have the conversations and I think one of our guests today is a really good example of of a way to maybe think about that but also from like Kate's point of view want to make sure you understand the real medical side of all of this as well as the mental health implications because we know it's a complex subject and if you're going through it you've probably been talking and reading and listening about it for such a long time compared to the people in your workplace who are maybe coming to this for the first time so that's what we've tried to achieve and hopefully maybe you even share this podcast with people at work to help them Mm, understand that's a good idea if not yeah do now, the first conversation that we're going to share is a chat with a lady called Kirsten from South Eastern Rail. And I'd seen her post on LinkedIn about their pregnancy loss policy. And I'd spoken to Kate about this being a potential conversation for the podcast. And you were really interested in it, weren't mm. you? Because mm. of some of the conversations that you'd had with yeah. some of your clients. Yeah, very much who was who felt that the railways were a very male dominated organization and also an organization that was quite resistant to change predominantly because they and I'm not being ageist in any way by saying this but because they had an older workforce and therefore mm. that that kind of resi- resilience to change really wasn't wasn't there and so I was fascinated to hear what she said. I mean Kate wasn't able to join me for this but I did put Kate's points to uh, Kirsten so have a listen. So I'm really pleased to welcome Kirsten Howes, who's Head of People at South Eastern Railway to the podcast to chat about their pregnancy loss policy, which they have just launched during Baby Loss Awareness Week. And we wanted to get Kirsten on to talk us through how it came about and how it has been received. So Kirsten, first of all, welcome to the Fertility Podcast. Hi, thank you. Can you tell us a bit more about the policy? I know you've done an accompanying manager's guide as well. How it came to to be developed, what the kind of conversation had been in the workplace before that? So it's something that I raised amongst the HR team. Um, Earlier on in the year in New Zealand, um, they passed a a law that um, anyone who had suffered pregnancy loss was was given paid time off of work Mm. or time off of work. Um, And I just thought that's just such an incredible thing to do. And that's, you know, New Zealand um, have, have done a really great thing there. We should do that. But but actually, then I realised that I'm in a really good place to be able to do that in a business without it being legislated for. So sure. I've got uh, my own experience of um, pregnancy loss. So I had a miscarriage um, about 11 weeks, a few years ago now. Um, and I found it a really, really difficult um, and isolating experience. And I think one of the things that I really recognised during that as, you know, I was, an, I was a HR manager at that time. Um, and, you know, I would be speaking to people um, every single day about all of the many, many reasons why they're off work, you know, and dealing with um, various different um, things at home. But nobody had ever come to me to request time off or support because of, because they or um, their partner had suffered miscarriage. So when it happened to me, um it wasn't something that other people were talking about. 
And so I actually had no idea how I was supposed to feel, what I was supposed to do, how much time I should be taking off work, what was normal. Um, and so and so kind of up on reflection, I realised that there's, there was a massive um, gap in, in um, the support that we provide to people and the, and the things that we're talking about and the things that we're saying to people. So, um, you know, I, I really did recognise that. And then, and then when... Um, New Zealand passed passed that law earlier on in the year. Yeah. I said to the HR team, you know, this is absolutely something we can do and we should do. Um, and we decided to do it in in Baby Loss Awareness Week. But but to be honest, it's been it's been a really easy thing to do because it has um, not met any kind of resistance from Brilliant. anybody. And actually, the response has really been this is really great because and and a lot of people have got their own experiences. And think it's a really great thing to do. So it's been re- it's been a really easy um, policy to bring in. It's been received so well. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know we did, we did managers briefings um, about the guidance, um, and it was completely voluntary. People didn't have to come, um, and we had about 180 people um, join one of those briefings um, during Baby Loss Awareness Week because it's something that that does. Um, touch lots of people's lives um, and people really do want to start opening up that conversation. Yeah, exactly. And what you just were talking about, your experience in HR, the launch that we've done with Fertility Matters at Work of our training and policy programme, my co-founders, Claire and Becky talk about how together they've got over 35 years of HR experience between them. Both have had their own fertility struggles. Neither of them had anybody come to them, like you've just explained, with any, whether it was pregnancy loss or whether it was any conversations around trying to conceive. And so what we're seeing, sadly, is that there's been, you know, such holding back of talking about this until there is some positive action. So it's amazing to hear and that 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 event that you put on was so well received. I'm also interested in, because you talked about the manager's guide, or I mentioned the manager's guide that you've created, because one of the things that we're really keen to talk about and highlight in this policy development that we're hearing more organisations create which is amazing as a starting point is whether there's been further conversations about fertility and fertility education as a whole and the struggles that people go through and whether that's something in the kind of processes that you guys are, uh, are looking at because we know that it's a much bigger conversation that like you were saying you just didn't know who and where and what you didn't know how to feel the emotional toll of all of this is is so impactful and we also know sadly from the research that we've done how many people either quit their jobs, take sick leave, consider going elsewhere because of how they've been treated. Um, what are your thoughts on that? So we have a separate and we have had a separate fertility policy that was bought in um, last year. Um, right. So we've got some really great people that work for us who have had their own fertility struggles and have used their own experiences to really drive some change in, in that area in our business. So We've um, got a the fertility policy, but we also run um, kind of um, working lunches as well. So people can can kind of drop in and, you know, there's a community that's been kind of brought together at Southeastern where, you know, people can people can have these conversations. And that's very much been driven by the people that work for us. Yeah. 
So, so that's really great. And that's kind of what we're seeing happening is that people who sadly have been through this are wanting to to take the lid off and to to lead these conversations. But as you were saying, having not had people come forward, we do know that there's this concern about disclosure and, you know, in your role as head of people, are you capturing that as well in that how this conversation can be done if people are nervous? Because we've had conversations with people talking about how they're they're worried that they might be able to look for promotion or colleagues might assume X if they're not there because um, obviously there needs to be flexibility if it's somebody that's going through treatment or they need time off ha- having been through a loss. I- is there a dynamic conversation that you're seeing? So, so yeah, I think I think so. And it's, it's quite difficult, um, especially with some of our safety critical um, people. So if people are having these struggles and it's particularly if women are having um, treatment, um, you know, we do need to know about those things. So I think that in some in some ways, it's possibly easier for us because if people are taking medication, etc., we have to know about that because of the right. to get medication checked, and people can't just drive a train whilst they've got things on their mind or they're taking medication. So, so we absolutely want to open up those conversations because absolutely to support people and make sure they're getting the support and the time off they need. But there's also a big safety risk for us as well. So we've got another reason to really want to open up those conversations. So whether it be about fertility treatment or whether it be about pregnancy loss or anything that's going on in someone's life, our management teams have to have really good relationships with people because we need to know what's going on in their lives. And if they're distracted, which you know could quite easily be the case, then maybe they shouldn't be driving a train. And we need to make sure that we're supporting people through that. Because what we don't want is people people keeping these things, bottling it up, yeah. not saying anything, and then they pose a safety risk. So I was coming into work when I had a miscarriage, and I could nip into the toilet and, and cry a bit and kind of not concentrate, um, but I wasn't putting anyone's life at risk. So, you know, we absolutely need to bring out all of these conversations. You know, we've done, we've done quite a lot with, me, um, like many organisations have, with menopause and Um, So we are really trying to start having these conversations um, for lots of reasons, as well as just, you know, the the, um, important part of trying to support people. And that's so interesting to understand the kind of everyday workings of how things are with you, because one of the things I wanted to ask you about, and, and Kate had mentioned it, and sadly she wasn't able to join us for this chat, is that Kate has had a number of patients from the railways who've struggled to talk to their line managers due to them saying it's quite male dominated, the environment. And, and one in particular felt it would be impossible to change this. And I just wonder, I mean, it's brilliant to hear your approach, but obviously, you know, when we said at the start, there's no regulation for this, so it's all down to individual organizations taking this on and developing it I just wondered what you thought about that I think that's really interesting and it's absolutely true the railway is um very um male dominated but the whole industry is um doing an awful lot of work on um trying to make it a more diverse and inclusive place to work and there's an awful lot going on that that change isn't going to happen overnight um but you know we're doing an awful lot to try and attract a more diverse workforce you know the gender balance has been something that we've been working on particularly with train drivers um, for quite some time and we are seeing lots of really successful women come in and and drive trains but but there is that kind of um social 
um, understanding that, you know, it's boys that drive trains. My, my daughter, when she was three or four, um, I asked her one day if she, if she would like to be a train driver. And she said, no, mummy, because yeah. boys drive trains. And yeah. that's a three-year-old. And I think that's really, really interesting. It's, it's going to be something that's going to take a long time to do. But we, we've, you know, we're doing an awful lot of work to try and make um, Southeastern much more diverse and much more inclusive. The fertility policy, the baby loss policy, that's all part of creating an environment where women want to work. Yeah. And it's leading by example, isn't it? And I know because I saw what you've done by you sharing it on LinkedIn and the more people like yourselves and Southeastern share what they're doing, hopefully other railway groups will want to follow suit and see what's done and hopefully ask how it's been received because we can only kind of hope that people kind of follow suit with these things, can't we? Absolutely, yeah. And I, and I have had um, quite a lot of response from my LinkedIn Posts from other um, HR professionals from train operating companies elsewhere and, and other organisations um, asking me to send the policy on. So I really, really hope that other train operators um, do pick this up and, and do do the same thing. Um, you know, and there's loads more to be done in other areas as well. So yeah. we've got um, a brilliant um, group. So our women in rail empowerment group our wire group at um southeastern's a group of um kind of women who volunteer to um kind of tackle all of these things and they helped a lot with the baby loss policy but they've got a list of six taboo subjects so the next one i think that they're going to be tackling is endometriosis so um there's lots of work being done and we need to share all of that and and lead by example and hope that others follow um, but it's great that others have got the policy and, you know, I'd be really happy for them to just change the label on the top yeah. um, and, 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 and bring it in. But, you know, because a lot of the, the um, work that we did with the baby loss policy was absolutely based on the brilliant work that Co-op and Channel 4 have done. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so I really hope that um, lots of other people bring it in as well. And we spoke with Channel 4 for the start of this podcast series focusing on fertility matters at work. And they said just that, that they wanted to share the policy because they wanted to make it easy for other people because why reinvent the wheel and the more access people have? Because part of the kind of initial issue can be time and not knowing where to start when trying to develop something like this. And I know obviously the Miscarriage Association were very involved in that policy development and in the guides that you've created. I know that you've signposted people to further support, which is what ultimately it's all about. It's what else is there in terms of peer support, which is what we focus on educating organisations about, as well as where else can people go for more support. So I think it's brilliant news. I think it's really encouraging, isn't it, to hear that, because we've seen what's happened with, with, with menopause conversations and mental health and well-being in the workplace in general. And, and we feel that this is a, a really kind of poignant time for this conversation to be pushed forward. And so the more people talking about it, like yourselves, the better. So thank you for sharing the post. You're welcome. What did you think of what she said about, you know, your point of it being male dominated and what they were doing as an organisation to try and help other rail organisations and that and the, the women's network that they've got as well, I thought it was really great to hear mm. that they've, you know, they've got that place. This is a huge part, isn't it, of this internal peer support that we talk about and they've got that happening, which is brilliant. Yeah, I think I feel really heartened that actually, and I almost want to go back 
to my patients and say, do you know what, this is where change is happening and this will filter through to your organisation within the railways. So it's just amazing to hear that that's what they're doing. Um, Amazing to hear that she wants to share it with other organisations as well. So hopefully what my patients have experienced in the past is going to be a thing of the past. and, And that's really interesting. I think she hit the nail on the head. And I know we've talked about this before about the fact that a lot of organizations will say in certainly in HR they'll say oh you know we don't really have people coming to us with fertility issues or pregnancy loss issues um and it just shows you doesn't it and she mentioned exactly the same that people are suffering in silence because we know that one in seven will suffer with infertility one in four will experience a miscarriage so I think that was really interesting and that then made me think that actually that really does pose a risk for organizations that perhaps will perceive that that pregnancy loss doesn't actually apply to them because they're not experiencing they're not seeing people coming forward so they'll probably think well it's not an issue for our organization but of course it is an issue will be an issue for their organization but they're they're individuals will be sitting there in silence. So that really struck me. I think when we talk about these numbers all the time, like one in four women will experience pregnancy loss, one in six couples and one in seven individuals are dealing with fertility struggles. We're so entrenched in it that it's so obvious to us. And, you know, we talk about we don't know or you don't know what you don't know. And, you know, I had a conversation just yesterday with a big organization about how they were saying, well, we feel that this is a new thing that's starting to be talked about. And we don't know whether that's because it's becoming more prominently spoken about maybe in mainstream media or because there's more people that it's affecting. And it's like, it's probably not that it's all of a sudden more people. It's just that people are feeling the confidence to speak up about it or they're feeling that enough is enough if they've heard examples. And I feel like we're playing a really small part in joining the dots between sharing this conversation between saying to organizations, look, hi, examples, examples, look, yeah. this is what you could be doing. And hopefully people hearing and going, okay, I'm hearing it. It, it, it is possible. And it's like, it feels like little, little by little, we're taking these fairy steps. And every time I know you or I have a conversation where we say it might not have been spoken about yet, but it will. And as soon as one person does, we know time oh, and time yeah. again, that people come to that person within an organization Now, our next guest is somebody who, a lady called Chona, who came to me really early on when we started talking about this series and asking for you to share your experience of going through fertility treatment at work. And I really wanted to share Shona's example because A, she's quite senior in her position. And I think there's an element of confidence around that seniority that comes through that I think is is interesting. We haven't captured somebody junior, more junior, who has had to overcome this. You've told us about it. And some of the examples that you've shared with us have reflected that. But that's something that we'll definitely revisit in the future, how it feels if you are younger um, and maybe starting new jobs or, or even choosing where you are going to work. And I hinted at that in our fertility benefits episode last week. Um, but Shona talks about her decision and and what she ended up doing in order to continue with treatment after having a failed cycle. So have a listen. So I was a business development manager for an outsourced agency that looked after contact centre and um, field marketing um, on behalf of kind of big brands. So it was... Um, it's a very busy role and it had lots of deadlines and often they were very short deadlines because if you get an opportunity, you have to act fast. And there were 10, you know, you know, clients alike tend to want the moon on a stick. So it was, you know, a, a really intense role, very, very enjoyable, but not one that necessarily lent itself to supporting fertility treatment. So I knew that I would have to approach 
my fertility treatment, at least the second time around, quite differently to how I'd done the first to kind of maximise my chances of success. So just talk me through how you first approached your place of work about needing treatment for that first round. So during the first round, I'd had the same line manager for some time. Uh, so a woman, local woman um, to me, and we'd, um, you know, we'd formed a good friendship and working relationship over the years. So I felt in a position to be honest with her. And that was really helpful. I'm not sure how I would have felt if it was somebody I hadn't worked for quite as long or perhaps was male. I know that's terrible, but, you know, that was just how I felt at the time. Probably feel quite differently now. Um, and she was very supportive. Um, I'd chosen a clinic near near my place of work so I could pop out for um, appointments and only be gone, you know, 40 minutes an hour if I was lucky. And she was just incredibly supportive and helped um, kind of manage my workload and kind of bat things away, bat projects away from me so that I could concentrate on my treatment. Um, unfortunately, my first cycle of IVF wasn't successful. Um, and I then took a few, few years break Um, I kind of wrote myself off and said, no, I'm not going to go and have a second treatment. You know, I didn't get really great results the first time around. I'd be throwing my money down the drain to do it. But there was just I was um, in my early 40s, I think I was 41, 42 at the time. And there was just this nagging feeling that I might get to 50 and kick myself that I hadn't given it a kind of second throw of the dice. Um, And this feeling was growing as my job was becoming busier and busier and more intense. Um, so my husband had always said, we can go another cycle, but I'm just not going to mention it because it's you who has the, the huge impact from all of this. And I just want you to know that I would do it and the offer's there. And it took me a good six months to kind of go, do you know what? I think I agree. I think I'm going to do this. So it was a bit of a surprise to speak when I had to speak with my boss again and said, you know, I'd given up on all of this three years ago when it wasn't successful. Actually, I am going to give it another go. Um, But I decided following a conversation with my husband that that it would just be silly to do it with my job as it was. It just wasn't going to match. It wouldn't help me. I don't think I could have managed. I think other people could. I think other people can manage that really kind of intense roles with the stresses of fertility. I listened to a podcast with um, Emma Barnett, um, who does Woman's Hour, and she talked about having her IVF treatment while, you know, reporting on um, a general election. And I'm I'm just not sure I'm that kind of person. I needed a bit more space than that. Um, so um, we decided to write a letter um, to the board because it, although it was a, a large business, essentially it was decisions were really made from the board as a group level. I wrote a letter explaining why I'd really like a sabbatical um, for three months. And they came back and said, we'd absolutely love to support you. We completely understand where you're at. We're really busy at the moment. Can we put it back to later in the year? So I wanted the summer off. And I said, no, we'll push it back to kind of the last three months of the year. Okay, I was happy to go with that because they were being so flexible. Um, And then I did. And it was a really lovely period of my life. I was able to exercise every day, really concentrate on my diet, have lots of lovely treatments like acupuncture and things like that and massage. And um, my husband's a contractor, so he managed to have some time off as well. And we just kind of threw everything at it, you know, and I feel very, very privileged that I was able to do that because not everybody can take a three months off work unpaid. Um, And it was a huge investment, but I'm incredibly glad that I did it. Um, especially given my age, I was um, almost 43. Um, I had 
um, less good results. We used ICSI in the end, and I did get um, three embryos, two which were transferred fresh, which were not great quality. And then I had one little embryo left who um, uh, was not great quality until day six, when apparently she, as we know now, turned the corner and looked fantastic overnight. I'll never forget the conversation I had with the embryologist. I think I was in the traffic centre when he rang and he just said, oh, it's looking amazing. You know, I just can't believe the difference. Right, I'm going to freeze it now. And, you know, you can go off and do whatever you want and then just come back when when you're ready to transfer. Um, so, uh, and that's what we did. I, I, I gave myself a, a three-month break for my body to kind of get back to normal. Um, and then I planned to transfer... Um, I think in in the February um, and um, in the end another work thing dropped so we had a massive tender which was a fantastic opportunity I was like mm, okay I'm going to push it back another month um, and then I had a successful transfer of my frozen embryo and I got my um, my little girl from that so you know I was just I was so grateful to the people I worked with I really was and I think during that time, things had really changed, actually. I think the first time I was probably more quiet about it. And the second time I was like, oh, do you know what? I just, I can't, I don't want to have, be mysterious anymore. I'm just going to be really open. I'm just going to tell everybody. So I told everybody in my office, it was a really mixed office, people, lots of different disciplines, you know, lots of different personality types. And I was just really open with them. And that actually meant, really interestingly, that my story kind of spread across the business. Oh, Shona's doing this and she's really open about it and as a result lots of other women contacted me and said oh I'm going through the same thing or I'm just about to start and so that was just lovely actually because I formed some really great friendships out of that and I was able to support other people which was just incredibly important to me and you know just to to bring it to the front you know you mentioned about um fertility in the workplace and really not being spoken about enough and I hundred percent agree with you and you know I'm so glad that I did what I did at the time because actually there was nothing but a fantastic response having what, said sorry go on Natalie were you aware of there being any kind of policy in place or did they kind of make it up around what you were saying you needed yeah between the first treatment and the second treatment, a policy had come in place. And funnily enough, um, I'm pretty confident that was because one of the HR business partners was also going through the same thing. So a policy was put in place. I have to say, I probably didn't adhere much to that policy. It was there to cover people who maybe are, you know, have a less flex flexible role than I had. Um, and it was, you know, it wasn't overly generous, the policy, but it was very supportive um, and, you know, there was very clear that you could have time off for appointments and it wasn't, you know, I've heard of some policies where the time off for appointments goes in the same kind of bracket as having, you know, time off to have a nose job or your boobs. Done. You know, <laughs> it was clear blue water between that and this. It was a, it was a good, good, solid policy, um, but it's certainly been helped by, I think, bringing up the profile of fertility but my boss and I just kind of did it between us you know I was like I've got this appointment here and I'll be gone and then I think I'll take two days holiday here and you know we just worked it out between us and she knew she really knew that you know I'd just whatever I took I would give back tenfold and that's just the way it works isn't it and you know and I've been able to do the same with people who report into me who've been going through similar things you know and I just think it's hopefully it's been just so much easier for them because you just work it out 
you know, no time to be a job's worth. You just kind of make it work between you and the job always gets done and probably even more so because you're so, you're so grateful that somebody supported you. And that whole staff retention piece is, is a mm. whole part of why we want to educate employers in, in why this is so important to try and look after the people you've got. I'm interested in whether you feel that having age on your side in a good way, that experience of where you were in your career helped you feel more confident in addressing these types of conversations because I'm also curious as to whether people younger in less senior roles would have the confidence to ask as you did. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. I think that there may be an issue there if you don't make it very, very clear in your communications that those kind of conversations are welcome. You know, I, I worked for, I don't work for them anymore, but um, I worked with this company for 13 and a half years. So I had some really long relationships there and some trusted relationships. And I'd worked very closely, fortunately for me, with members of the board. So, you know, they knew me and they knew that, you know, I, I was so committed to this, but I was also equally committed to my job and that, you know, the, they really wouldn't feel an impact. And I think that really helped. Had I been a kind of entry level, you know, colleague role, then maybe I might have found that a little bit more challenging and I might have been a bit more worried about income, uh, about perception, about kind of how that would affect, you know, my career prospects, you know, and I think we need to make it clear that that should not and would not have an impact. And in fact, you know, the benefits for any employer, like you said, you know, employee engagement is so high. So it's, it's so important that it's high. And it, it, and at the moment, all we're hearing on the news is that, you know, it's an uh, um, it's kind of a, an employee's market, isn't it? People are job hopping. They've, re, you know, kind of reassessed their lives after the pandemic. And, you know, now they're not going to work in a muck job, you know, in something that's not right for them. They're going to work for somebody where there's a purpose and a vision and where, you know, where um, that kind of that understanding and that kind of, you know, employee well-being um, agenda is really high, you know, and that that's that's the way it should be. And I'm so glad we're finally getting there as a nation. It's been a long time coming. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so what did you think of her decision to ask for a sabbatical I actually loved listening to Shona I could listen to her forever I love her voice I loved her chat um, she just explained everything so well and yeah what, what a great privileged position to be in to be able to ask for a sabbatical and I think what struck me and she totally alluded to it as well is the fact that she got great support because of her seniority and this made me really feel that there is this disparity and almost a divided culture within an organization from the senior to the ones that are actually the work bees if you like and she says doesn't she that there was a policy but she didn't really need to follow it because it wasn't applicable to her but would be applicable to somebody in a more junior position and they might find that it wasn't going to be suitable for their needs and I think that's so interesting that fascinated me and to be honest it's something that I've not had discussions with in organizations I'm going to start doing that now so thank you Shona. Yeah I think that age um, piece is is so relevant when we talk about the flexibility we have to think about the different stages that people might be at don't we so it might be mm. investigative it might be problems around things like endometriosis that that people might not have a, a name for yet but it's still part of this whole preconception experience isn't it so yeah. I think it's it's really important and I think there's there's definitely potential for us to look at it in a in a more in-depth way 
in the new year. So leave that with us. And by all means, you know, if you want to share your experiences, if you are younger, and I think by younger, we're probably saying like in your 20s and maybe at the start, maybe in your first or second job. And this is, you know, on your radar and you're trying to work out what to do about it. It'd be really good to hear from you. So you But can... it could also be that you're, you know, you might be in your 30s, but not in a senior role. You know, it doesn't mean yeah, to say right. that you have to be in a senior role yeah. just because you're in your 30s. So, you know, it would just yeah. be so interesting to hear from somebody that isn't in that management level that will have to abide by a policy and will find that quite restricting. Yeah. And what you need, because like we say, little by little, we can try and help with the change. And that's why we wanted to share our last chat. It's really interesting because there's been some amazing research that's been taking place. And we wanted to speak with Dr. Crystal Wilkinson, who is a senior lecturer at Manchester Met University. We've talked about this on our socials, and you might have heard a bit of it in the podcast during Fertility Awareness Week. I shared an audio drama that was from these findings called Man Up. If not, go back and have a listen on the feed. Um, because that that was something that was created from these findings. What what Manchester Met have been doing is looking at complex fertility journeys and employment. And they spoke to about 80 people to find out how treatment, how pregnancy loss, about all different tests, about whether you're in a heterosexual or same-sex couple, all the different kind of routes to parenthood, how it does impact you at work. And Crystal is, is going to talk a little bit about what they found. So we're going to welcome Dr. Crystal Wilkinson, who is a senior lecturer at Manchester Metropolitan University in the Department of People and Performance. Crystal, how are you doing? All right, thanks. And I've been really keen to have Kate and I chat with Crystal because I've been watching over the last couple of years, actually, hearing about some research that the university have been doing, looking at the complex fertility journeys and employment. So it's, it's a broad project on, as you said, complex fertility journeys. So we're looking at fertility treatment, um, but also kind of broader kind of pathways, trying to decide when when and if you can even try for children, going through tests, going through treatment, potentially experiencing miscarriage, and for some kind of coping with involuntary childlessness at the end. So we wanted to look at kind of diversity of experience in those journeys, in the types of worker, so not just women, but also men and um, same-sex couples and women pursuing motherhood on their own. And crucially, different types of work and workplace and work, like employment contract as well. And it's so encouraging to know that proper study is being done into this because we're obviously pushing forward to talk about how important this wellbeing piece is in the workplace and we can give the the kind of expert insight in terms of what Kate does when she's really explaining from a medical point of view what treatment is and then from the fertility matters at work point of view we're talking about like patient experience as well and, and what can be done to better support the emotional part but to have findings as well from research is always kind of helping your case so tell us a bit about the kind of people that you've been talking to whilst you've been putting all of this together yeah so we've done 80 biographical narrative interviews so that's people asking people to basically tell us your story of how your fertility journey has kind of interacted with your work and work experiences we've had demographic diversity we've had diversity in the particular journeys that people are, have been on the stage in their journey so for some people they're still in the middle still hoping that they will have children that their IVF will be successful for some people they've maybe had one child but they're having an issue with the second child um, and for some people it was at the end of their journey kind of looking back either from a place of, of having had children in the end or, or unfortunately not having children at the end all sorts of employment contexts, um, national contexts, predominantly in the UK, but we have had people in America, in Europe, 
we have had people in a number of different industries, people moving between industries and sometimes moving between industries because of their fertility journey. So, you know, I couldn't cope with that particular industry, that particular job. So I moved to a different one, put up time out of the labour market for a while. People who've changed the focus of their career within a particular industry. So, for example, academics who said, I just couldn't do research anymore. I focused on kind of the teaching or, or an admin management track. So all sorts of different journeys and, and different challenges being experienced along that. Yeah, I completely agree with what you're saying, Crystal, about it can often depend on the type of job that an, an individual is doing as well and whether they feel that they can continue with that based on the complexity of what they're going through on their fertility journey and the, the stress that that's been put on them and, and almost that feeling of just overwhelm of not being able to manage the job alongside a fertility treatment. So yeah, that's something that, you know, I see all the time. Um, what I what I do tend to see is that the women who do decide to talk to their employer about and divulge their fertility journey, I'd say 90% of the time, not 100%, but 90% of the time, they feel a lot of relief in doing so. Um, and they do feel that in some circumstances, not all, that they do get that support. What what were your findings from that? Did you find that people felt supported, or did you find that there was a? It was like, did it was it determined on their industry that perhaps some industries were more supported than others? Male male dominated were they less supported? What what did you find? Hi, it seemed to be uh, very much about the line manager. Um, it wasn't particularly about an industry. It wasn't particularly about a type of job, even it's the extent to which you feel able to disclose is linked to your line manager and the, the culture of the organization in general. It also depends on how much you think you can manage it yourself. So for some people, the nature of their jobs, if they have flexibility, X, Y, and Z, then they could manage it. They could manage their appointments. They could manage counseling sessions and stuff around their work. But then the knock-on implications of that vary as well, because it's great to have flexibility and to be able to manage your appointments and then do your work later. But if you're then working all evening and all weekend, because you've managed it yourself and you haven't told work, then you never have the downtime. You know, you're already taking on this thing that's giving you a lot of, it takes a lot of time, it takes a lot of energy, it takes a lot of emotion, it's a lot of work. You know, managing a facility is a lot of work. Mm. Um, And if you're managing that alongside a job, um, people feel, a lot of them said, I'm very lucky, I'm so lucky because I I have flexibility. But then they never had the support and they never had the downtime and stuff. So I think it it very much was individual decision-making. Do I disclose or do I not? Do I feel I want to disclose? Do I feel I can disclose? Is it too private? Is it too upsetting? As well as thinking about the possible reaction, are they going to be supportive or not? So when it came to line manager, did you look at the reasons why it might be that the line manager wasn't able to be supportive? Because I talk about the fact that sometimes these subjects can be really triggering for a line manager, especially if they've experienced infertility themselves or they've experienced a miscarriage. Or sometimes it can be purely because they're embarrassed. They don't know how to hold these conversations that, you know, that they just don't know what to say. They're worried about saying the wrong thing. And sometimes it can be that they just, just literally do not know what to do, don't want to handle it and will shut down the conversation. Did your research look into the reasons why their line manager might might not have been able to support them? Yeah. So as I said, we interviewed 80 individuals on complex fertility journeys who talked about, you know, whether they discussed it with their manager, how the manager reacted. Um, and we also interviewed 10 line managers as well for, to get their perspective. Um, so I, I think there's a number of issues there so one absolutely is about their knowledge of these issues how confident they feel whether they feel it's invading someone's privacy um, and so on that that is one 
Um, two is their knowledge of policies and practices and what they can and can't do and their own levels of autonomy. So sometimes line managers wanted to be really wanted to be supportive, but they've got not got the time. They've not got where do I reallocate the workload to? I've not got money. Um, a couple of times they explicitly said I wanted to support, but my manager said, "Well, fertility treatment's a lifestyle choice." You know, so it's like they wanted to support, but they're being constrained by by the next level up. There were some really interesting examples of managers circumventing policies and stuff to be supportive or to, to go out of the way and do stuff in their own time. So, you know, I think these are a crucial player in the picture, you know, is the line manager and how they interpret policy, whether they are enabled to to support or whether, you know, it's just putting more on them, in which case that makes it very difficult. One of the things that's come up in the conversations we've had is that idea of you leaving a manager before you're leaving an organisation. And so we really need to have that focus, as we've been saying, on that line manager training and encouraging that that flexibility of conversation because it's not also just going to be, well, this is the way to do it. It has to be a two-way conversation and, and encouraging the employee to say, well, I need this and could we talk about this and to go with solutions rather than just expecting them to know, you know, because we we're always talking about um, with the podcast, our, our audience being their own advocates. And so in this situation, we need people to advocate for how they can manage it to offer solutions as well in the conversation so that it's not just a, I've got this issue, what can you do to help? But likewise, the, the person they're speaking to is then just left thinking, what the hell am I going to do? Absolutely. So you want resources, training, support for managers. I think also when we talk about kind of culture change, you know, one, one issue is just having narratives in the workplace for people to tap into. So fertility treatment being something that is somewhere on your internet, you know, if you type IVF into your internet and there's no hits, that's not going to encourage you to think I can talk about this at work, but also around the culture of, you know, do we celebrate managers who support people? Do we reward managers who support people? Do we tell other managers that manager over there was so great? Look how they supported. You know, we need to be thinking about the you know, what, what's in it for managers as well. And and you know, if, if their only performance management is on keeping the operation going and hitting short term targets and stuff like that, and they're not being rewarded for retention, for absence reduction, for engagement levels in in their staff, then. They're never going to be at the top of their agenda. And was it differentiated by size of company in, in those 10 line managers? Did you feel there was difference or were they all from pretty similar sized organisations? No, it was a mixture. I mean, it was only a small sample, but obviously yeah. we've got 80 people talking about the managers and the manager reactions in their industries as well. What we would have classed as kind of the most supportive managers, oddly enough, counterintuitively, were the ones that sort of set us, they were almost puzzled, like, why are you asking me? how I support someone through fertility treatment because it's the same as I manage somebody going through anything that has an impact on their performance and attendance or at work. You know, it's like, you know, someone going through cancer, somebody going through a divorce, somebody going through pregnancy. You know, it's like, you know, they, they need adjustments, they need support. And for a period of time, their performance might not be what it always is, but in the rhythms of life, you know, if we support them through this, and then they will be back to perform. Did you find that 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 those again because my experience of line managers have been absolutely brilliant are the ones who have had either personal experience or somebody they know has experienced infertility so they've got that prior knowledge did you find that those managers that were perplexed as to why you're asking did you did you know whether they'd had personal experience or not or would it was it literally was that they were just completely perplexed well I think it's it there's two different types of people in the interview so yeah there were people who mentioned you know I, I spoke to my manager because I know she's had fertility treatment or I know that he his children were through IVF or you know so so that was certainly a encouraged disclosure and there were positive supportive responses linked to that um but the couple of people I'm particularly thinking about 
were just senior leaders. You know, it wasn't the first rodeo. You know, they hadn't, they weren't new line managers who very much re- relied on policy and guidance. They were the ones that sort of said, I've got quite a bit of experience of managing people through through fluctuations and and this is just the same as anything else. I know one of them was um, in, in nursing and, and he said, you know, in this industry, we have a lot of maternity and pregnancy and we support people through it and, and colleagues will help people out because it's, so he sort of was equating it. It's no difference really to how we as a team respond to maternity. That's really interesting you to say that because I have heard within the NHS completely opposite mm-hmm. as well is because they're such so so pushed as a as an organization and strapped and you know their workforce is so important especially at the moment that actually it's been very negative on their um any support that they've got in their fertility journey which you would very much hope in a healthcare organization that that wouldn't and be the, the case that, that's not the the teaching, is, the other one. Te- well, teaching is, is a feminized occupation you know you would imagine they have a lot of pregnancy and maternity and most of the teachers that we spoke to and one of the managers who was in a teaching context have all said yeah it's not it's not great in teaching well we've actually shared as part of this series uh, a conversation with four teachers about issues in teaching talking about they were saying 75 percent of teachers are women and talking about what needs to be done in terms of better support and the lack of time off and cover and the inability to navigate treatment because of the working conditions as well. I think also there's a lack of HR in these in these as well. You know, quite often a school won't have a HR department. Yeah. Um, and, and so they're not even comparing how they would treat somebody with how they might treat through maternity or yeah. reasonable adjustments for disability, which is the obvious comparator that not many people seem to, to talk about. But, you know, that what we would do if somebody had a disability, which arguably some definitions of infertility would. I know that you'd also touched on involuntary childlessness. What were the conversations around that? Obviously, we know the kind of the triggering things that happen in the workplace, pregnancy announcements, baby showers, all the types of things that can continued on Zoom with people having less of an opportunity to to hide when, you know, there's a camera Mm. in their face. Is that some of the things that people assuming somebody will do something or can stay late because they've not got a child or that someone else is able to have more flexibility because they do have a child? Those types of conversations were apparent, were they? Yeah, I mean, I've done a previous research project on solo living managers and professionals and their work-life balance and the same issues were coming were coming out there so I think I mean involuntary childlessness is, is even more of a kind of niche thing I suppose for an organization to have a policy on yeah I am aware of you know that occasionally there's childlessness groups now in terms of your your kind of well-being group provisions alongside you know LGBTQ plus groups etc etc but I think if we have policies and awareness raising around fertility then the same kind of triggers for someone going through IVF and the same kind of triggers as someone going through miscarriage are likely to apply. You know, so if we're thinking that baby showers, people parading babies through the office, walls full of family pictures and pregnancy announcements might be difficult for someone who's just had a miscarriage, might be difficult for somebody who's going through IVF. They're also going to be difficult for the people that are involuntary childless, whether that's, you know, socially or at the end of a complex fertility journey. So we've shared one of the ethnodramas that you've created with the focus on male fertility. And part of what you're doing with the findings is, is is to develop these. Is that something that you've done before with research to try and portray it in a more creative way? Or is this a new thing for you? No, absolutely new. And it's been a quite a learning curve. So we're extremely, extremely grateful to Jenny Berry, um, who's our creative consultant, who's, who's worked with us on this. And I believe this was almost a playground chat that the pair of you two 
the pair of you had yeah. she was telling me because I, I had a chat with Jenny who who we're hoping to have have a chat with as well because she does a lot of work as a as a poet as, and has been bringing to life the role play scenarios ultimately aren't they that she's written as a result of your findings yeah so she's done a lot of work with homeless people she's done um, work with sex workers she's done work with prisoners all about kind of giving voice to people who don't always have a voice in a particular context um and you know the power of language to to convey messages yeah she, that was a, just a very serendipitous um, arrangement that we happen to have a chat about and in the male piece the language around the isolation I think it was so moving and really good to capture and it would be great to hear you know people's feedback on on what they think of what we've shared the other one that I've heard so far is that HR scenario and Kate you were talking about the person who's being faced with this problem just not having the tools to cope with it and there's like a, at the end of, of this piece there's the HR person going well I don't even know where to start like you you can imagine under a heavy workload when there's just no resource or an awareness or understanding of where to go to put anything into play why this could then just not be dealt with in a sensitive and empathetic way at all yeah totally I mean it, it you know somebody that's struggling generally with their workload and then they're faced with with this and have maybe no no idea no guidance on on what they need to do within HR and I think we a couple of weeks ago we interviewed um, Channel 4 and their pregnancy loss policy and how they really would like it to be a an example of best practice and they I think that am I right in saying honestly that they actually want other organizations to take the, their policy and replicate it within their organization which is fantastic you know it's all about sharing why should we reinvent the wheel when actually somebody might have already done this for them which I think is great and if that then cuts down the time it's going to take for that overworked bewildered HR manager then it's all good I think that's another potential reason for a little bit of reluctance in some organizations is that this is all very very new um you know there's a huge uprising at the moment in in menopause awareness and menopause policies um there's even less research I mean our study is one of the only ones going, you know, that, that's actually looking at and speaking to people um, about, you know, what policies would be would be good for you. I mean, in our research, there's, there was examples of people whose organisations had a policy and that policy just really didn't help them. And line managers saying there was a policy, but the policy constrained me. I wanted to do X, Y, and Z, and the policy said three days for IVF. So, you know, I think what, what's really needed now is, the, is some evaluation activities going on in organisations the likes of Channel 4, there's, there's you know, a n- number of other news stories recently. I think Kellogg's has brought one out, ASOS. But yeah. Um, you know, yeah. So what, what the next level is, is that we actually need to start having some some evaluation impact, whether that's in-house done by the HR or it's, you know, academic work to just say, you know, are these hitting the spot? Are these giving people the sort of support that need it and tweaking accordingly? So to find out more about Crystal and the work she's doing, check out her Twitter handle. I'll put it in the show notes and you can keep up to tabs with as they release more and more of their findings because there's a load of information there. We've been talking about it in our Fertility Matters at Work um, work as well. And we will be putting bits and bobs out on our socials. So just to keep your eyes on that. Hopefully this episode has given you an overview of, of best practice from an organisation of what you could do as someone going through it when it comes to, I suppose, having the confidence to to deal with how you're feeling. I mean, when it comes to having conversations in the workplace, what's the first way that you approach it, Kate? Because I know that you guide a lot of your clients about talking about this. I mean, to disclose or not to disclose, if it's not for us to say, it's only for you to know how you feel about. But we do know that when you do disclose, as you've heard, the support can be there. But we also know when people disclose very often, sadly, the support isn't there. Yeah, I think I have the discussion with them about the the fors and against, 
and let them make their own mind up. And then if they decide that, which to be honest, most people will decide to disclose, although maybe not straight away. So it might be a bit of a process and then support them once they do decide to disclose on how to go about disclosing to get the right end point really and, and what they need from their organization as a result yeah and make sure you're following at fertility matters at work on instagram to keep up to date with all that we're doing and we're constantly sharing tips of how we feel that we can support you in those tricky conversations and we've got all sorts of exciting things happen we've got a new membership that you can get your mitts on get your organization to get their hands on and that enables you to have more direct access to us to kate to julianne who we spoke to earlier in the series she and her organization parenthood in mind are offering amazing support from the psychological side and that all comes from working with us so check out fertility matters at work you can get all the details there thank you for all your participation in this series and we will be talking more about the workplace in the new year for sure we'll let you know when we're going to be back once kate and i have had a little bit of a break but before we get all christmassy i want you to join me in just <laughs> taking a moment and wishing this wonderful lady a very happy birthday. So we're going to sing together. Much. Are you ready? I want well, you to I sing out sing loud well. and Kate is going to hear it. Okay. So just for a moment, we know this is, and feel free if you want to sing it to Kate and you can, you know, send it to her. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to Kate. I wish you could see her face. Happy birthday to you. Are we allowed to say Thank which birthday it is? Yes, you are. She's fifth. She doesn't look She's it. She's 50. I know. Do you know what? I've embraced it over the last few weeks. I've been dreading it, really dreading it. I didn't want to be it. I don't feel 50. I feel like I'm 25. I really don't feel 50 at all. But, you know, it's happening. I'm so excited because it's on Boxing Day. It's my birthday. And our local pub are putting on champagne and canapés for me. I know. Which is, so I've really started to revel in it a little bit so thank you very much thank and so you for you your should. lovely wishes and if anybody wants to send you a direct message on your birthday how do they contact you on your socials uh, your fertility nurse well that done. would be lovely she got it right several episodes of kate getting the uh <laughs> the new social media handle correct you can contact me at fertility poddy but i'd send all your love to kate because it is her birthday and hopefully <laughs> nothing gets cancelled please stay safe if you can get your booster get your booster if you want to stay home don't feel bad about it don't get any fomo just do what you need to do have a wonderful wonderful christmas if, whether you're celebrating or not if you're not celebrating have a wonderful festive rest. period yeah. wonderful rest. rest and relaxation and just a little bit of time for you and your loved ones that's totally. what it's all about isn't it and you know what if the end of this year isn't what you wanted it to be one thing I would say is have a think about making a new tradition something that is new for you that you can take forward you know because we're going to be talking more about hope in the new year we're going to be talking about maintaining that hope about living in the way about how to have things in your world when things aren't going to plan because ultimately that's a huge part of what this whole TTC journey causes things don't go to plan you lose control you're not where you want you might be comparing however this end of year looks do that for yourself find a little it can be as it can be minuscule ours and our household is making ginger biscuits that we decorate we started it during lockdown and we sent them to people that we couldn't be with and this time when we're going to family that we do get to see we'll be giving it to the people that we're not going to see if you get what i mean so um however little it is but do something special for yourself 
we always do on Christmas Eve, we always have a smorgasbord of lovely foods and that's what we all love. The boys love it. It's just, that is one of our traditions. Love that. Yeah. We do that for New Year's Eve, but we don't call mm. it a smorgasbord. We call it a table picnic, but we're now going up up class to smorgasbord. Smorgasbord. Well, see, for New Year's Eve or whenever else we have it, or New Year's Day, it, it's called a 1970s running buffet. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, from us with our smorgasbords to you for listening and supporting us and letting us know what you think. And do keep letting us know what you think. You can pop us a review in Apple Podcasts. It's so lovely to know that, you know, we are hitting a chord, striking a chord, plucking a chord, mm. ringing a bell, kissing ringing you under bell. the mistletoe. Ringing a bell. It's Christmas. Exactly. Ringing a bell. Um, but we are sending you kisses with the mistletoe above mm. us to uh, Happy thank Christmas. you for your support. Happy Christmas. And we will see you again in 2022. <laughs>